So we're going to be in John 19 this morning. Um, If you want to grab the paperback Bibles that are underneath of you to follow along, um, John 19, or you can Google John 19 on your phone and it'll pop up. John 19 is where we're in. We've been in a series on the book of John for a while. We're going to keep going for a while and see where that gets us. So excited about some stuff we're going to preach through the last half of this year. But for now, John 19, would you, would you pray with me? Hey, Father, we know that wherever the nature of the Lord is spoken of, there he is present. So we want to speak of you. We want to speak of you well, and we want to find you. Uh, in that. And so help us to see you more clearly. Help us to grasp the heights uh, and the depths and the widths and the breadth of your love for us found in Jesus. For what encouragement we need today, give us that. For what challenge, help us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We had a, in our house, basically, since we got married, we'd had a 32-inch television in our family room. And then last year for my birthday, God was very good, and I, we upgraded to a 48-inch monstrosity, and we put it into our living room. Uh, the first thing I watched on it was the Cavs win the, the national championship, which was awesome. I, I love this TV because it's just that much bigger, right? If you've ever upgraded from a medium-sized TV to like a big one, there's a part of you that goes, what was wrong with me? before this moment, do you know what I mean? And so we have this TV, we're drawn in, the pictures are so much better, and then for Christmas, my parents got us a sound bar, which is essentially like a glorified speaker, right? So I got this speaker here, but it came with a subwoofer. So that means when the guns are being fired and the explosions go off and the TIE fighters fly by on the screen, uh, Star Wars nerd, uh, that it's just shaking the whole room. It's in HD, it's drawing me in. And then when we, when we get into these closing chapters of John, John kind of makes a shift in the way that he's writing this gospel. You see, earlier in the gospel, he was writing about what Jesus did and what Jesus said, and sometimes even interpreting it for us. So here's Jesus telling the story, and John says he said this because of da 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 But what's interesting is in John 18 and 19, John kind of changes the way he's writing and invites us into this story that he starts to tell in HD, the story that he puts a sound bar on and a subwoofer, he puts it in surround sound. And he invites us in to see the sights and smell the smells and hear Jesus cry out, hear the crowds yell back. We're invited to take root in this, in this action film. It's, it's no longer a documentary, it's an action film. And so suddenly we find Jesus in his final hours and in his final moments, we find we see Jesus in HD. We, we see it and hear it in surround sound. And all of a sudden, these things that we sing about and believe and confess to be true and pray about, they're, they're not just concepts. Concepts are abstractions. They're bloody and real, and we can reach out and touch them. John says, Then Pilate had Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. The soldiers wove a crown of thorns and pushed it on his head, and they put a purple robe on him. Hail, king of the Jews, they mocked as they slapped him across the face. Pilate went out again and said to the people, I'm going to bring him out to you now, but understand clearly that I find him not guilty. Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said, look, here's the man. And when they saw him, the leading priests and the temple guards began shouting, crucify him, crucify him. 
Take him yourselves and crucify him, Pilate said. I I find him not guilty. The Jewish leaders replied, by our law, he is to die because he called himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was more more frightened than ever, and he took Jesus back into the headquarters again and asked him, where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. Why don't you talk to me, Pilate demanded. Don't you realize that I have the power to release you or crucify you? Jesus said, you would have no power over me. You would have no power over me at all unless it were given to you from above. So the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. Then Pilate tried to release him, but the Jewish leader shouted, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar, and anyone who declares himself a king is a rebel against Caesar. And when they said this, Pilate brought Jesus out to them again. Then Pilate sat down on the judgment seat on the platform that is called the stone pavement. It was now about noon on the day of preparation for the Passover, and Pilate said to the people, look, here's your king. Away with him, they yelled, away with him, crucify him. Crucify your king, Pilate asked. We we have no king but Caesar, the leading priest shouted back. Then Pilate turned Jesus over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus away. Carrying the cross by himself, he went to the place called the place of the skull in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they nailed him to the cross and two others were crucified with him, one on each side with Jesus between And Pilate posted a sign on the cross that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. The place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Hebrew and Latin and Greek so that everyone could read it. Then the leaning priest objected and said to Pilate, change it from the king of the Jews to he said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate replied, no, what I've written, I've written. So when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they divided his clothes among the four of them. They took his robe, but it was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said, rather than tearing it apart, let's throw dice. This fulfilled the scripture that says they divided my garments among themselves and threw dice for my clothing. So that's what they did. Standing near the cross were Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, dear woman, here's your son. And he said to this disciple, here's your mother. And from then on, his disciple, this disciple took her into his home. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. And to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch and held it up to his lips. And when Jesus tasted it, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and released his spirit. John 18, in the chapter we looked at last week, Jesus is condemned to die by Jewish and Roman authorities. And in John 19, this verdict becomes clear, that though Jesus is perfectly innocent, though they cannot get a charge to stick on him, Jesus goes to the cross. His life, his innocent life, is exchanged for the guilty life of a criminal named Barabbas. And so John writes in excruciating detail this story of Jesus carrying the beam of his cross uh, up to this hill of him being nailed to it with a a thief on either side of him crying out in his last moments. Uh, If you and I, if you're like me and grew up in the church, this becomes a familiar story. But for many of us, we don't really have a full grasp of what's happening that this very moment, these very last moments are are exactly what our faith is built on. And I was doing some research and, and someone wrote this about what's happening in this text. They said, the condemned man would carry his cross to the site of the crucifixion where the upright beam, 
about nine feet high, had already been staked into the ground. There he would be made to lie with his back on the ground, arms stretched out as his hands, wrists, or forearms were tied or nailed to the crossbar. After this, the crossbar was stood up and affixed to the upright beam. To this beam, the victim's feet were tied or nailed, often not very high off the ground, whereby the legs were bent and twisted so that a single nail was driven through both heels. For hours and sometimes days, the victim would hang in the heat of the sun, stripped naked and struggling to breathe. In order to avoid asphyxiation, he had to push himself up with his legs and pull his arms, triggering muscle spasm that caused almost unimaginable pain. The end would come through heart failure, brain damage caused by reduced oxygen supply, suffocation or shock, atrocious physical agony, length of torment and public shame combined to make crucifixion the most horrible form of death. There's something about this that makes us unable to look away. And so we see this grim irony, the son of God, the lion of Judah, the rose of Sharon, the, only, the father's only begotten, nailed to a tree, hung naked in the sun, dying a criminal's death. Paul is trying to wrap his mind around this in Philippians when he says, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. There are so few words to describe what's happening here. John says that this Jesus is close to the Father's heart, quite literally, in the Father's lap, and we string him up and watch him breathe his last and yet, even as he dies, the word of the Father is what he's called. The word of the Father can't be silenced. Even in his final breaths, he cries out his last words. And, and, and John invites us to pay attention to them. You know, if you were to go home and Google famous last words, you'd find page after page after page and speculation as to why they said that. Uh, Mahler, who was a German composer, died in his bed conducting an invisible orchestra and with his last breath cried out, Mozart. Steve Jobs, according to his sister Mona, when he was lying there in his final moments, just kept saying over and over again, oh wow, oh wow, oh wow. Nostradamus, who you know, supposedly predicted all these future events, got at least one right because the night before he died, he said, when the sun rises, I shall no longer be here. All four of the gospels go to great lengths to report Jesus' last words. And in John, we find three of them and they deserve kind of our focus. They deserve our attention as we hear what is the last things that Jesus wants us to know? What are those final words well, the first is found in verse 25 of chapter 19. Standing near the cross were Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary. There also seems to be a horde of Marys, right? Because it lists like four of them. And when Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, who is John, he said to her, Dear woman, here is your son. And he said to his disciple, Here is your mother. And from then on, the disciple took her into his home. You know, Mary, who's Jesus' mother, she's totally disappeared from the Gospel of John since way back in chapter 2. She's just totally gone, and then we find her again at the, foot of her, at the foot of the cross of her son. 
And there Jesus places her into the care of his best friend and his best friend into the care of his mother. Now one would think, isn't that Jesus being nice? He's making sure his mother's physical needs are tended to after he dies, but Jesus has other brothers. One of them is James, who would later write one of the New Testament letters. So Jesus isn't just being a nice guy. He's establishing something. He is building what we might call a new family. He is building a new community. He is giving Mary and John to one another in the same way that you and I have been given to one another. We are part of a, a new community, a new family of love. It is under a covenant or a contract. It is bound together by the blood of Jesus, who in his last moments calls us together into this this community of love. All of us who have stepped across the line of faith now belong to a new kind of family. I have more, more in common with a Christian whom I have never met from a continent that I have never visited than I do a family member who does not know Jesus. There is a connection there that is deep and undeniable and powerful. We are brothers, we are given new mothers and fathers. We are given new brothers and sisters. All of this given to us because of Jesus' death. And so John would later write, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. He says, no one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. Listen, when Jesus established this community of love, he was choosing us for good or bad. He was choosing us to be the people through whom his love would be seen or not. This is problematic because the number one reason for non-participation, the number one reason to not go to church in Trumbull County, does anybody want to know what it is? I'll tell you. Fighting. The number one reason people say in Trumbull County, I don't go to church is because, you know, they don't seem to like each other that much. They seem to backbite each other. They seem to fight a lot. They don't seem to speak well of each other. And let me tell you about this. The signature of Jesus in our lives is how I speak of you and how you speak of me. The way that people will come to experience Jesus is in the way that you and I treat one another. Which means, in the way that I speak of you, the way that I talk about you, the way that we handle conflict, because by the way, that's inevitable on this side of heaven, that says something about who we believe Jesus to be. In fact, us in the church, this is a dress rehearsal for heaven. When I do weddings, what do we do the night before? We do the rehearsal so that I can get the mother of the bride to calm the heck down so that we're not doing the weird family drama. Let's dump the bucket right now, you know what I mean? Listen, that's what the church is. The church is the dress rehearsal for heaven in which we will then live in this community of love forever, which means in this moment, as Danny the intern would say, uh, you and I are the only Bible some of our non-Christian friends will ever read. Our face is the face of the love of God or not, which means the way I treat you and the way you treat me either sends people running to Jesus or running from Jesus. And when we send them running from Jesus, we violate the covenant community we've been invited into. And from a certain perspective, we make the death of Jesus null and void. Jesus calls us into a new community of love. But then in verse 28, it says, he knew that his mission was now finished. And so to fulfill scripture, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch, and held it up to his lips. You know, Jesus, John's opening words in the sentence couldn't be more important. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. In the midst of the agony, in the midst of that mind-numbing pain, I mean, Jesus had to be seeing white. 
I mean, in the midst of that, Jesus is still cognizant and knows that his mission is fulfilled, and he thinks to himself, there is yet another scripture. There is still more work to be done. And so he says from the cross, I thirst. My thinking, knowing full well what they were going to give him to drink, they gave him vinegar. Sour wine is vinegar. And so they stick it in a sponge, put it on a branch, put it up to him, and he drinks it. But when Jesus says, I thirst, this is really at the core of what Jesus' message is. I get you. Because Jesus wasn't just thirsty. Jesus was hungry. Jesus was lonely. Jesus was grieved. Jesus' heart ached. Jesus got mad over injustice. Jesus knew what it was to have a weird family. I mean, his mom's there. Where are his brothers? Jesus understands us is what it is. When Jesus says he's thirsty, he understands you. St. Augustine wrote this beautiful poem. He says, man's maker was made man that he, the ruler of stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, the truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. Listen, there is no part of your experience, there is no part of your weakness that Jesus does not understand. You walk through a hard thing, and what does somebody say to you? They say, hey, I know exactly how you're feeling. No, you don't. We don't say that. Fun rule for being a human, just take that sentence right out of your vocab. Because you know what? You don't know what it's like to be that person. You could have walked with the same exact thing, but you're not them. And here's the other thing with that. Only Jesus can truly say, I know exactly how you're go- what you're going through because you see he was made like us and yet without sin. And so he knows what it is to suffer as we have suffered. But check this out, he made you. He knows every little fiber of you, every little toenail, every little hair, every little extra long eyebrow hair, he knows and he made. And so when he says to you, I know what you're going through, he, he means it. John Piper says, um, because Jesus is man, we, he has experienced the same things that we do. And because he is man, he can identify with us more intimately. Because he is man, he can come to our aid as a sympathetic high priest when we reach the limits of our weakness. Because he is man, we can relate to him. He is not far off and uninvolved. Because he is man, we cannot complain that God does not know what we're going through. Listen, from the cross, Jesus says, I get it. From the cross, Jesus says, I have drunk to the very bottom of the cup of your suffering. There's no path that we walk. There is no journey that we tread that Jesus says, you know, I don't really understand that. I'll just pray for you. Jesus says, I know. And then he gives us a community of love to walk that road with us. So we're given a community of love. We are, we are, we are find a Jesus that identifies with our humanity. And then we find out that the work is over. You see, Jesus, what's the last thing? It says that once he had drunk the wine, When Jesus tasted it, he said, it is finished. When he he drunk the wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Now catch this, Jesus gives up his life. Jesus is not worn down and just dies. He gives up his spirit. He breathes his last. He chooses to die. And when he does, he declares his work to be finished. Let me tell you what this means. This is Watchman Nee, a Chinese Christian. He says, Christianity does not begin with a big do, but a big done. Christianity does not begin with a big do, but a big done. We begin our Christian life by depending not upon our own doing, but upon what Christ has done. Listen to me. A lot of us view religion 
as I have to do this list of holy tasks in order to earn God's favor. We are raised in churches that tell us of an angry God who demands perfection, who says, do this, do that, give more, work harder. And so we ramp ourselves up and we keep finding ourselves never good enough, but the gospel says to us from the very cross, from the very beginning, it says, you do not have to do anything because the hardest part is done. We do not live under a crushing burden of do, we live in the light freedom of done. Now there's a tension here. There is a tension to, to, it does seem like this book tells me to do things. And, and yet this is the tension, it's no longer a command, it's an invitation. It's no longer a command, it's an invitation. It's an invitation to what, 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 what Jesus calls life and life abundant. Because the work is done, we are just invited into a new kind of humanity, a new kind of living and loving one another. And so the writer of Hebrews says that with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, Jesus entered the most holy place for all time and secured our redemption forever. And so we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. Since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts and fully trusting him. Jesus says, I have invited you into a new community of love. Jesus says, I totally understand you. And Jesus says, the hardest part of all of this is done. He says, be free. He says, be free. And so in one way, you might say that the work is done, but in another way entirely, you might say the work is just beginning. Because in the shadow of the cross, we have been invited into a new community of love where we have received the affection of our Father. Why would we not want to invite other people into that? You see, in the shadow of the cross, we have found a God who understands us, who is not far off and uninvolved, but who gets us. How could we not look at our friends and our family and, and grab their faces and say, I don't understand what you're going through, but I know somebody who does. At the foot of the cross, Jesus, in the shadow of the cross, we have found religion to be over. I no longer fear his wrath. I no longer have to manipulate him with good deeds to get nice things. I no longer have to do great things for him to get his approval. No, it's not a do, it's a done. And so I'm invited into this new friendship with God. How could I not want to let people know that? In the shadow of the cross, we find this community and this God who understands, who has done almost all of it for us, and in the shadow of the cross, we see the crucified Christ, Brennan Manning, who, by the way, if you've never read his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, you probably aren't even a Christian yet. Um, it's just that important. Um, he says this, the crucified Christ is not an abstraction, but the ultimate answer to how far love will go what measure of rejection it will endure, how much selfishness and betrayal it will withstand. The unconditional love of Christ nailed to the tree does not flinch before our perversity, does not flinch before our perversity. Instead, he took our sicknesses away and carried our diseases for us. In the shadow of the cross, at the foot of the cross, we see Jesus most clearly, his love on display, and we see it in HD. We hear it in surround sound. In fact, it's in 3D. We went and saw Toy Story 3D with my grandma and she kept like reaching out to grab things. We are watching the love of Christ put on display in HD surround sound and 3D. We can reach out and touch him. 
We see our name written in his wounds, and even as we hear him cry and smell the blood and hear the earthquake and the whole earth moan, we are reminded of the words of Paul who says this in Romans 5. He says, while we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. He said, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person. Someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good, but God showed his great anger, no. God showed his great wrath, no. God showed his great judgment, no. It says God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God, not a business contract, not, there's no prenup, no, since our friendship with God has, since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God. Why? Because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends with God. Listen to me. I grew up in a church that what did we talk about? We said, have you asked Jesus into your heart? You put your faith in Jesus. Have you asked Jesus into your heart? A generation before that, my parents' generation, you didn't ask Jesus into your heart. You got born again. And, and, and the generation before that, 100 years ago in the deep south, you didn't talk about getting born again. You didn't talk about getting saved. You didn't talk about asking Jesus into your heart. We didn't talk about stepping across the line of Jesus. Do you know what we said? We said, I have been seized by the power of a great affection. I have been seized by the power of a great affection. I have been seized by the power of a great affection. I was seized by the power of a great affection in the shadow of the cross. In HD surround sound, we see and hear this Jesus beaten, bloody, naked, struggling for breath, crying out to God, and yet we see not a man to be pitied. We do not see uh, something for academic and theological reflection. We see God's love put on full display for all to see. We see him and we are seized. We see him and we are seized by the power of a great affection. This is how we know God's love was revealed to us. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Let's pray. Jesus, you have seized us. You have won us. We ask, God, that you would help us to, be, to see that more clearly, to be seized by it. We ask for your grace. God, there are just some people here that like, they just think you're mad at them, Would you remind them that you're not. Pray this in the name of the one who has given us all his affection. His name is Jesus. Amen.